Thank you, Miss Stacy and Dad and Roger Dale. And we also say thank you for your prayers for Christy and the family as we buried uh, J.L. Beasley yesterday. Thanks, Mom and Dad and Cheryl and Daryl for attending and the plant that you guys got for us. We were at the Mormon church. I won't say anything more about that, but uh, we can talk about it Wednesday night if you like to. It was quite an experience. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 1.14. As you know by now, we, we're working our way verse by verse through Colossians, but when a busy week comes about, and for our visitors, I am bivocational. I work 7 to 5 at Baton Rouge Industries Monday through Friday. Uh, I have to pull one out of the Wayback Machine, and uh, that's what we call it. And uh, it's actually five years ago, uh, this very month, that we were in this text, because I date everything. And then I started to think about, uh, you know, Christy likes to use the phrase, you're going to need to pull one out this week because we're busy. And uh, I thought about, instead of just going to hunt for something to pull out, I told you this whenever we finished the Gospel of John, that if I had one book, I could just preach it for the rest of my life, verse by verse, it would be the Gospel of John. And uh, I figured that when I do have to pull one out, uh, we're just going to go consecutively through the verses of John again, and because uh, I like order. I just I can't function without order. So that's what we're doing. And so far in the last few months, we've worked our way through the first 13 verses as you know, of this Gospel of John. So let's start today by reading the text I'm going to preach in verses 14 through 18. We'll read that together. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Look at this. For he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Tremendous passage. So John opens this gospel with these 18 verses, these first 18 verses that is commonly known as the commentators call it his prologue to his gospel. This is John speaking theologically. And then starting in verse 19, the next verse, he then goes into narrative where he starts to, to tell the story of the life of Jesus while he was here on this earth. But here in the prologue, of verses 1 through 18, John is giving us essentially his thesis statement for this gospel. And his 
thesis statement is this. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That He is the Creator, as we learned in those early verses of chapter 1 here. He is the Creator of the universe who has actually become a part of His creation. He is pure, eternal being. And let, let me explain what when I say that. When I say He is pure, eternal being, that means He is uncreated. He has always existed. Never has there ever been a moment that He didn't exist. And He has something that none of us have. We're all created. He has within Himself the power of being. That's what I mean by pure eternal being. This one who has pure eternal being, who has always existed, became a man. That's what John is saying. That's his message. Jesus is not a created man, as the cults teach. He is the only God there is, in human flesh. I want you to understand that that is the, and I'm, I'm putting that in caps and quotation marks, that is the most essential doctrine in the Christian faith. That is first place. And that is why there have been and there continue to be so many heresies down through the centuries concerning the nature and the and the person of Jesus Christ. Right now the new age is movement is exploding again on the internet. And there are all different varieties of the nature and person of Jesus that you can go and look up. But this is the most critically important doctrine of our faith. Without understanding this, without believing, there is no Christianity apart from understanding this. It falls apart in on itself. It must be known, it must be believed in order for any person to escape the judgment of God and enter into heaven when they die. That's how critical it is. And really, this all-important doctrine is summed up in the first five words there. Look in verse 14. You remember we learned at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is the Word. That's And we talked all about that before. You can go back and look at those messages on our Facebook page. Jesus, the Word. But look at this phrase. And the Word became flesh. That is the, the central truth of the Christian faith. That is the theme of John's gospel. Any other view of Jesus Christ outside of John's clear proclamation is absolutely unacceptable. In fact, any other view of Christ outside of what John is teaching us here is a damnable heresy. That's how strong it is. Now, it really is safe to say that the Apostle John was completely overwhelmed with this 
foundational doctrine. In fact, you could say rightly that he was legitimately obsessed with this doctrine. And whenever you get into a conversation with anybody about religion, and that conversation turns towards the subject of Jesus, you always have to get real specific and focus right down in on every jot and tittle about what Jesus they're talking about. Are they talking about the one who is the eternal God who is defined here by John? Or are they talking about some other Jesus? That's critical. And listen to me, when you're out in the world and you're talking to people, you can never take it for granted that anybody automatically has it right about who Jesus is. Never take that for granted. Most Americans will tell you, yes, I believe in Jesus. And when somebody tells me that, that I don't know, I say, okay, well, who is Jesus to you? How do you define him? By what authority do you look to to define Jesus? Most people's authority for how they define Jesus is their own brain, their own thinking. But we step up to the plate and say, no, there's one authority that defines Jesus and only one, and it's this book. Now, I want to show you some other examples of how much this doctrine was just, it just permeated the Apostle John's heart and mind. So look with me at 1 John. And it's so interesting. In 1 John, he starts out much like he does in the Gospel of John. Look in verse 1. What was from the beginning... That's Jesus. Who, remember, remember, remember John 1, 1 through 3. Let's just look at that for just a second, just to put these two things together. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's the Trinity right there. He was in the beginning with God. And then watch this just, just phenomenal, overwhelming statement about Jesus. Talking about Jesus. All things. How many things in the universe? All things came into being through Him. And just in case you don't get that, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is that clear enough for you? Who else could that possibly be talking about but God? But John says that's Jesus. Okay, now go back to 1 John. I mean, when the beginning began, he already existed because he's eternal. But go back to John next in, in 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, that's Jesus. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, verse 2, and the life 
was manifested. Remember back in the early part of John 1, the very parallel language, the eternal word, the life. Remember the life was the light of men and the life was manifested in the world. And look what John says. We saw this. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard him speak. We touched him with our hands. Look, verse 2 goes on. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. He refers to him again there, just as he did in the Gospel of John, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. I mean, John just can't get over this. He is absolutely blown away by the fact that he has heard him with his own ears, that he has seen him with his own eyes, that he touched the creator of the universe in human form. I think this would be something to obsess about, don't you? He goes on in verse 3 and says, So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Verse 4, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The reality is John never got over this in his whole life. You wonder why John refers to himself in in his gospel never by his name. As you know, he always referred to himself as, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because I'm telling you why he did that. He never could fathom the reality that this is the eternal creator God. The one true God in human Form and he loves me. He couldn't get over it. He walked with me. He talked with me. We had conversation. We lived together. We went all over the place. I had fellowship with him for those years of ministry. And I couldn't get over it. I can't get over it. Look in 1 John 4.15. He writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Let me tell you, if you tamper with the deity of Christ, and let me make sure you understand that word deity. That simply means Godhood. The Godhood of Jesus. If you, if you tamper with the deity of Christ, you are not in the kingdom of God at all. At all. It's just that simple. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But it has to be the right Jesus. It has to be the Jesus of Scripture alone. Down in 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come. We saw Him. We heard Him preach. 
Verse 20 goes on. And has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. Look at this. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. I mean, John wants you to know, right? Again, you hear me say this all the time, but if you try to make the argument that the Bible does not teach the deity of Christ, you just really must not be able to read. Period. Now, when you consider all of this, it shouldn't be surprising to you that of all the Christian doctrines, no single doctrine has been more assaulted and more attacked than the truth concerning the deity and incarnation of Christ. It's right at the top of the list. There have been all kind of Jesuses, as I've said, and all kind of Christ that have been offered to the world. Matter of fact, isn't it interesting that we are warned even by Jesus Himself, in multiple places in Scripture, that as we get closer to the coming of Christ, false Christ will multiply. Jesus warned us. False Jesuses will multiply. So that's why I'm telling you, we have to be very discerning about whether people that we talk to are talking about the true Jesus. Let me put it another way. It is just as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus at all. It is just as damning. You cannot be saved believing the wrong thing about King Jesus. You must believe in His deity and you must believe in His humanity. And that's why John is so compelled with this. Now go back to our text in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. And the Word, as we have learned, this is the eternal Son of God whose eternal being became flesh. Sometimes the word flesh is used in a moral sense, like in Romans 8 that we'll one day get to in Sunday school. Uh, the deeds of the flesh, meaning in a moral sense, but, but sometimes it's used in a physical sense, and that is the way that it's used right here. The eternal word became a human, is what this means. God and man are joined in one person, and I'm here to tell you, never again to be separated is what the Bible teaches. And think about this. This, this just makes my little brain explode like sticks of dynamite inside my head. His human nature does not overpower His divine nature. And His divine nature does not overpower His human nature. They are both perfect. They are both distinct and at the same time indivisible and yet unmingled and unmixed. Right? The deity of Christ is not diminished by His humanity, nor is His humanity 
overpowered by His deity, and that is totally beyond your human comprehension. If you think you can explain that, let's go to lunch. I'll be glad to hear it. But maybe I can help you out with this biblical truth. When you get to heaven, Christian, and you see Jesus in heaven, He will be exactly the same God-man that He was when He walked on this earth in His post-resurrection glorified form. Isn't that fascinating? That is the way that He ordained Himself to be forever. He's the same Christ. He's not floating around up in heaven in some type of ethereal form like some of the silly people who take fake trips to heaven and then make millions of dollars off of the book deals that they sign. He's not that Jesus. Jesus is exactly who He is. He will always be who He was on earth, truly God and truly man in the same way when He walked this earth after His resurrection and you're going to see Him. And more incredibly than that, you're going to be like Him for you will see Him as He is. That's another sermon. And let's take this a step further. This is a important theological note. The humanity of Jesus is not the humanity of Adam before the fall. Remember, Adam was created without sin. But Jesus does not have a pre-fall humanity. Some people think he's fully man in the sense of Adam before the fall, but that's not true. He's truly man in the sense that Adam was after the fall, and how in the world do I know that? Well, because he lived and he grew and he died. Those are factors of the fallen condition. Furthermore, if he was not in the form of man after the fall, he would have had no ability to understand our weaknesses. No ability to understand our infirmities. No ability to be tempted in all points as we are tempted and come through it as a merciful, sympathetic high priest and, most importantly, substitute for us. So He is truly human in the sense that we are human in the post-fall realm with one exception, without sin. Never sinned. Word, thought, or deed as our substitute. Because remember, we need that perfect righteousness in order to be right with God. He attained it for us in our place as our substitute. Without sin, holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners forever. So the Word became flesh. And then look next in verse 14. And dwelt among us. Now that Greek word literally means dwelt. To pitch your tent. So he brought his tent to us and he settled down in that tent here in this world for those 33 years. It's incredible. The one who always existed, never was there a moment that he didn't exist, became one of us. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christians, you need to understand that fancy word. Propitiation. You need to understand and know what it is and be able to tell somebody else what it means. The basic understanding of that word means appeasement or satisfaction. Christ's death appeased, satisfied the holy justice of God. We're sinners. We've broken God's law. God's perfect justice must be maintained and it will be maintained in one or two ways for every human being who has ever been born on the earth. Either a person, justice will come down and rain on them for breaking God's law for eternity in outer darkness or Christ can be your substitute and have it all put down on Him in your place. But either way, God is propitiated by the sacrifice of Christ. His holy wrath is appeased. Roman, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Paul got it too, by the way, didn't he? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, meaning a thing to be held on to. But what did He do? But emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul masterfully combines the deity and humanity of Jesus in that one set of verses. Let me tell you, you cannot deny those truths and just in those verses and have eternal life. If you deny that Jesus is God and that He came in human flesh, you don't know God. Now, How's the introduction? John gives us three very important statements. Don't worry, visitors. It won't be that long. Three statements, three words in this text that give very clear evidence that this is God that John is talking about. And the first word is glory. And the second word is grace. And the third word is God. And those words will frame the outline for the rest of this message for today. Back to verse 14 in our first point. The incarnate Christ displays divine glory. Look what it says next in verse 14. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is His glory? What what does that mean when we say His glory? Well, it's best to start in the Old Testament in order to grasp this doctrine. God's glory, listen to me, is intrinsic to His nature. 
God's glory is who He is. God's glory is the sum of all His attributes. Think about His omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His immutability. And you can go on down the line. Take all of the attributes of God together and that makes up His innate, intrinsic glory. But then, not only that, there is also His manifest glory. And he manifests his glory both symbolically and in reality. And here is exactly what I mean by that. Remember back in Exodus. And Moses says, show me your glory. Huh? And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory, Moses, but I got to warn you. I can't show it all to you. Because no man can see my face and live. So Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock right here and I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass by. And what you're going to be able to see is just like the edges of my glory shining across the covering that's in front of you. You can see the fringes of my glory because if you if you saw my full glory, you would be incinerated in one second. So so what is this kind of glory? This is God's nature and His essence manifested in blazing light. And you know what happens in in that passage in Exodus? Immediately after Moses sees the manifest glory passing by, you know what God says? To Moses, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, and on it goes. So the glory of God is the complex of all His attributes, and sometimes it was manifested in blazing light. And you saw Him both there as He recited His attributes to Moses. Later on, you remember... That God led the children of Israel by a pillar of fire, remember, at night. And then the tabernacle was built. And what happened? The Shekinah glory came down upon it. So we're talking about the manifestation of the attributes of God in light. Which I'm excited to tell you is going to happen again in the future at the second coming. Light like you've never seen. That, that you can never even imagine in your brain. But on one occasion, Matthew and Luke record this. Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain one day with Jesus. And the Lord momentarily, incredibly, pulled back the veil of His flesh. And what did they see? His glory. It's probably a dumb illustration, but I I just imagine like Clark Kent just pulling it back. And there's that S, but it ain't an S, right? And the Bible says it was so blinding that they fell down on the ground like dead men under the, the sheer shock and the force of that blazing Shekinah glory, even though it had to be veiled to some degree or they would have been burnt up on the mountain. 
And Peter writes about how when we were up on that mountain, we, we saw his glory. Remember, what did Peter say? Lord, let's make some tents so we can stay here. We need to be up here, right? Go back to John 1.14. I'm here to tell you when John says we saw his glory, he most certainly is talking about witnessing that Shekinah glory that he experienced up on the mountain that day, which none of them could have ever possibly gotten out of their minds in their lifetime. I, 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 I would have to imagine that there was probably not a, a single day that went by for the rest of their lives that they didn't think at some point in the day about what they saw on that mountain because it was so incredible. But more than that, when John says we saw his glory, he's not only talking about the manifestation of that glorious light up on the mountain. He's also talking about the reality of those attributes which were manifest throughout the ministry and the life of Christ. John could say it this way. We saw his love. We experienced it. We saw His mercy. We saw His wisdom. We saw His power. I mean, He's in a boat and it's a raging hurricane-like storm. Peace be still. Everything's flat and totally quiet. Wow! We saw His compassion, His holiness, His kind, His patience. We saw it all. We saw all those attributes that the Lord recited back to Moses in Exodus when Moses saw his glory. And we saw that light on the mountain. And we saw the glorious Shekinah light. We saw the manifest light that symbolizes his glory and we saw the attributes that make up his glory every single day that we were with him. A visible representation of His glory and the invisible representation of His glory in His life. So when you ask John, is Jesus the only God-man, God in human flesh? John's going to tell you, yes, because we saw His glory. Then secondly, John will tell you that the incarnation of Christ dispenses His grace. Look at the end of verse 14. It says, full of grace and truth. You better love that word, full. That means not half measures of grace, not fractions of grace, not incomplete measures of grace, full of grace and truth. And notice grace and truth are together in this passage and they need to be together. And for our sake, they have to be together because the only way that you can experience grace is by believing what? The truth. So John is saying we have experienced His glory in light, in His attributes, His glory as the only begotten from the Father, verse 14, and through His grace and His truth manifest in His works and His word and His life. And then next, John the Apostle calls on his old friend John the Baptist. Look in verse 15. 
John, John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. How can somebody who comes after me exist before me? Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist before Mary was pregnant with Jesus. John was born first into the world before Jesus. And John is saying, the one who was born after me existed before me. That means Jesus is pure eternal being. This means Jesus was born into the world after John. That means that Jesus existed before him in eternity past. That means Jesus is God, folks. There was no pre-mortal existence. None of us lived before the foundation of the world, but God. Next, in verses 16 and 17, John writes, For his fullness we have all For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus dispenses grace. And aren't you glad to be delivered from the law? We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. And brought into this reality of grace. So Jesus displays his glory and he also dispenses grace. This is just such great evidence of his deity. And then there in verse 16, for for of his fullness we have all received. Oh, look at this phrase, grace upon grace. In in the Greek, it's literally grace after grace. It's grace in the place of grace. What does that mean? It it means an endless, non-diminishing supply of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is what it means. Grace after grace, meaning after this grace is moved, there's more grace filling the vacuum where that grace is no longer. Remember Romans, Paul said in Romans 5, in this grace we stand, we live. This, This is where we exist, Christian, in grace. Aren't you glad? Grace comes constantly to us because we constantly need it with our battle, our everyday battle between the flesh and the spirit. But it comes constantly to us because we have believed the truth of the gospel. It's a never-ending supply of grace. There's nothing better than being a Christian. When Paul prayed about that thorn in his flesh, what did God say? My grace is what? Sufficient. It is. There's a never diminishing supply of God's grace for all who believe. Then the end of verse 17. Notice how it says, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now that's an important theological statement. This was promised in the Old Testament and it was even activated in the Old Testament. Noah found Grace in the eyes of the Lord, the Bible says. Everybody ever saved in the history of this world, Old Testament and New, has been saved by God's grace alone. But grace was not, listen now, fully realized 
until Jesus came as our substitute on Calvary's tree. That word for realize here literally means came into being, came into existence. We could read it this way. Grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, if they came into being through Jesus Christ, then then was there any grace before Jesus came? Yes. Because the eternal God omnisciently knowing and ordaining that the Lamb was slain when? from before the foundation of the world, was applying that grace that had not yet fully been validated to believers in the Old Testament. And the grace that Christ exhibited and purchased at the cross extended backwards as much as it extends frontwards. They just had the types and shadows looking forward. They believe and are given grace just like us. John is just continuing to say, this is not an ordinary man. This is the one and only God man. Truly man and truly God. We've seen it. We've experienced it. He displayed glory. He dispensed grace. And now one last point, and we'll close with this one. The incarnate Christ defines God. Displays glory, dispenses grace, defines God. Look at how verse 18 starts out. No one has seen God at any time. Why? He's invisible to the human eye. There are times when God has appeared, as I said, as fire or light and things like that. But the eternal God has no form. No one has seen God at any time. However, notice next, in Incredibly, the only begotten God who, who, only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, that's Jesus, has explained Him. Another mind-blowing verse. This is the Son of God, the incarnate one, who is in the bosom of the Father. That word bosom is really an antiquated word, and here's exactly what it means. It's actually used in the book of Acts for a bay or an inlet geographically. It, 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 it's a word that's used for the fold in material. If you took a bunch of material and you, and you piled it up, and you, you know how you have those little folds, that, that would be the word that would be used. And so what he is saying is that the Son of God who is tucked in intimately to the very actuality of God, who is folded into God, who is God, Jesus, he has explained him. That's the meaning here. And that last statement, he has explained him. That is very powerful. Wouldn't you like to have somebody explain God to you? When somebody says, how would you explain God? Where would you go to explain God? You would go to this verse and say, look at Jesus. He explains God. He has explained Him. And by the way, the word for explained here, Greek word, is from where we get the word exegete. We use that word in, in verse by verse Exposition. That's where we do fancy word exegesis of the text. 
We exegete Scripture simply means we explain Scripture. It means to interpret, to, to give the meaning. So, so Jesus exegetes God, we could say. If you want to know about God, look at Jesus. Jesus defines God. He displays glory. He dispenses grace. So please, don't ever come to me with that nonsense that Jesus was just a great man, that He was a great religious leader. None of those explanations are an option. He is God. And if you believe and you receive Him, remember verse 12. But as many as received Him, that's Jesus, even to them He gave the right, notice this word, to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. You're not automatically a child of God. The little song, it's wrong. Right? We're all God's creation. We're not all God's children. You become a child of God when you believe upon His name. And even then, you are adopted by grace into His family. If you're a Christian here today, aren't you glad you're adopted by grace into the family of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel of John. Oh, I could preach it till I die. What a clear, clear understanding of who God is, of who Christ is, that John gives us. Thank you, Lord, for this. Again, I pray if any here today have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, they would repent and believe the gospel and come to Him by saving faith. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that today we have just continued to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is, and I pray that we would continue to deepen our understanding until our last breath on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.